following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, March 20th, 2022, on the basis of Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. For the parents who raised their kids back in the 70s and the 80s, the object of choice was a latch key. The latch key was used by evidently many kids who grew up in that era to get back into their otherwise unoccupied and empty house after school was over where they waited alone and unsupervised until their parents returned home from work. The so-called latchkey kids of the 70s and 80s have been thought to be among the most unparented generations ever as a result suffering from things like loneliness and boredom and neglect. For the parents who raised their kids back in the 90s and the 2000s, the object of choice was a helicopter. Always hovering overhead, always making noise, so-called helicopter parents sort of took things to the opposite extreme, didn't they? They were involved in every single aspect of their children's lives, and as a result, are, are thought now to have been very much over-worried, over-involved, and over protective. So let me ask, for those of you who have raised or are raising your kids in the 2010s and the 2020s, what do you think the object of choice will be? What do you think people will look back and use as a way of sort of assessing and sort of summarizing an entire generation of parenting? Maybe it would seem to be a little bit unfair that only in retrospect, only with the advantage of 2020 hindsight, a group of outsiders, of, of people like teachers, employers, sociologists, psychologists, would get to just pass judgment on an entire generation full of parents, parents who no doubt were just trying to do their best, parents who didn't want to make the mistakes of previous generations, parents who, of course, didn't get an instruction manual for their kids on the first day of the job, as much as we might lament that fact, as much as we might even complain about that fact, isn't it true that that is the very same thing that we are so often fond of doing with our God? The worship theme for our worship this Lent has been open-door policies. We've been looking at some of the very surprising strategies that God uses to take wayward sinners and get them to long for home. And one of the, the problems, one of the challenges standing in God's way, you might say, is that very often as children of God, we like to give an assessment of the work that our Father in heaven does. Maybe even offer him some advice about how he could do a little bit better. We have our own opinions and our own expectations of just how much he ought to be involved in our lives when we want him to be right there by our side, ready to just swoop in and bail us out when we're in trouble, and also when we want him to just kind of leave us alone and let us have our space. When we want him to give us very clear, very straightforward direction and guidance for exactly what we're supposed to do, and when we want him to sort of just make the decision for ourselves and take the path that we want. 
Well, thankfully, God, our Father in heaven, doesn't just leave us to our own opinions and our own expectations about the work that he does. Instead, he wants us to know exactly what we should expect from him. And just as was the case with the latchkey kids of one era and the helicopter parents of another era, as we look at the word of God in front of us today, we're going to see that God ties, God connects his parenting style, you might say, to a single, very familiar object. As we look at these verses from Exodus chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that when God wants his children to know exactly what he is like, exactly what they can expect out of him, he starts a fire. Now, the fire in question is the very famous so-called burning bush in which God appeared to Moses on the mountain that was called Mount Horeb. In order to understand the significance of that burning bush, we also need to understand everything that was going on around that bush at that time. In the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, Moses tells us how God's people, the children of Israel, had gone from being VIP guests in the foreign land of Egypt to becoming public enemies number one. How they were put into forced labor by the Egyptians. They were forced into slavery. They were being treated very cruelly and very harshly. And in fact, this went on for generations and even centuries. As a result, Moses tells us that God's people were calling out to him. They were crying out for help. God, don't you see what's going on? Aren't you going to do something? God, where are you? In a lot of ways, that very same question could have been asked by Moses himself personally. Also, from the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus, we hear from Moses himself that during the first 40 years of Moses' life, evidently he developed this idea that maybe he was going to be the one who would deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. He was a, a fellow Israelite with the children of God, but he had grown up in Pharaoh's palace as an Egyptian. The Bible tells us that Moses was very powerful in word and in deed. And so one day Moses even decided that he was going to use his bare hands to put to death an Egyptian that was treating a fellow Israelite particularly cruelly. This was a manifestation of his evident opinion that he was going to be God's great deliverer. And yet what happened? Word got out of what Moses had done. Pharaoh was suddenly angry with Moses, wanted to kill him, in fact, and the children of Israel, his fellow Israelites, wanted nothing to do with him. So he fled to Midian, and he spent the next 40 years of his life tending sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, watching all of his ambition go right down the drain. God where are you? It was into these circumstances when everything seemed so cold and so dark that God finally decided to make his presence known. And when he did, he started a fire. He appeared to Moses on Mount Horeb in a fire that was burning within a bush. And yet Moses tells us that there was one very unique thing about this fire. It was not burning the bush up. In other words, it had all of the normal beauty, all of the normal warmth, all of the normal glow and appeal and attraction that a fire in the darkness has, and yet without any of the danger, without causing 
any of the fear. And in fact, this was so much the case that, that at one point, God kind of had to put the brakes on Moses a little bit. Moses was so excited to go over and see what was going on. He was so excited to respond and to dialogue with that voice that was coming from within the bush that God had to say, hold on there, Moses. That's close enough. In fact, you better take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. It turns out, as God told Moses, he had been there the whole time. He had seen the misery and the anguish of his people. But the fact that for all of those years and all of those centuries, his presence had remained hidden, it really forced God's people to cry out to him, to call out to him in their distress. And then finally, when God did decide to appear to Moses, it was in a way that was so disarming, so in many ways underwhelming, that it allowed Moses, as we read on to see, that it allowed Moses to voice all of his objections, to bring all of his concerns and even his complaints before God. It allowed Moses space to poke all of the holes that he wanted in the plan that God proposed. When God wanted his people to know exactly what he was like, he started a fire, and it was a fire that burned but did not destroy. One of the things that makes this episode on Mount Korb so famous, you might say, is that it seems so different. It seems so unique. It seems so very much one of a kind. And yet it would be very much a mistake for us to look at this episode and think that it was the only time that God acted this way. We don't really have time this morning to get into all of the details, and so you're kind of just going to have to trust me when I tell you this. That the person who appeared to Moses in those flames, in that burning bush, was not just God in general. Very specifically, it was the Son of God. It was the second person of the Trinity. And as you well know, a few centuries later, that same Son of God, that same second person of the Trinity, once again decided to make his presence known and make his presence visible among his people. This time, hiding all of his blazing glory, not in a warm flame of fire, but instead in flesh and blood of a human being. And in fact, it is also the case that that same Son of God that same second person of the Trinity still makes his presence known and makes his presence visible among his people here in our day. Not in a flame of fire, not in flesh and blood anymore, but instead in the gathering of God's people as they assemble around his word and his sacraments. Now the fact that God chooses to make his presence known in this way might actually make it seem at times that God is nowhere else to be found in our world and in our lives. So much so that just like the children of Israel, we might at times cry out to God, maybe even with a little bit of accusation and criticism. God, aren't you paying attention? Don't you see what's going on in our world and in my life? Don't you care? Aren't you going to do something about it? And yet realize there is great blessing in the way that God chooses to reveal himself among us. In fact, I, I heard another example of this just yesterday. A person had received some crushing news, the kind of news that comes at you like a punch in the gut. And the kind of news that they received left them wondering, if there really is a God, why would he allow something like this to happen? 
as difficult as a thing that is, do you know the only thing that is worse than asking that question? Not asking it. Not ever having anything to cry out to God about. It would be worse for God to be involved in our lives the way that maybe we at times think he ought to be. That he would be so fully, so directly, so visibly, hands-on, obviously involved in our lives that instead of having things to call out to him for, instead of having things to, to long to be with him about, we instead would react the way that many children of helicopter parents react. We would run. We would rebel. We would resent the presence of mom or dad who are always hovering over us, always around, always over-caring, over-invested, over-involved. It is a good thing that very often things seem so cold and dark. It makes us long to want to go to that light and to go to that warmth. And furthermore, what a blessing that when we do, God appears among us in a way that, yes, very much warms our hearts, but does not destroy us. In fact, it is so much so the case that at times when we appear in God's presence, it might be a bit underwhelming. It might be a bit less than impressive. It might even seem a little bit dull or, I'll just say it, boring. But out of all the things that you've ever felt when you have gathered with God's people in God's presence, I am guessing that one of them has never been terrified, scared to death, and that's very much by design. God appears to us in such a way that he creates a safe space for us to bring to him, just as Moses did, all of the things that might be weighing on our hearts, all of the questions and all of the concerns that we have, even all of the objections and criticisms that we might have about his plan or his ways. When God wants us to know exactly what he is like, it's almost as if he still lights a fire. It is a fire that warms and glows, but not a fire that destroys. Okay, I suppose that's nice. Having someone who is, is patient with us, having someone who is always there and ready to listen sure is good, but, but at some point, God's going to do something, right? At some point, God is going to act. At some point, God is going to intervene. At some point, God is going to make his presence known on earth in a, in a different and more obvious way, right? Well, that's why God sort of steered the conversation with Moses the way that he did. When Moses finally had a, a chance to talk after God laid out his entire plan for him, Moses asked this question. He said, Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the people out of Egypt? God had absolutely no interest in actually answering the question that Moses had asked. It's as if God was saying, it doesn't really matter who you are, Moses. I will be with you. Okay, Moses had a quick follow-up question to ask. If that's the case, if that's really the important thing, well then, who are you? Let's say I go to the Israelites and I tell them that you sent me and they ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? God's response, I am who I am. Doesn't sound like much of an answer, does it? In fact, it, it sort of sounds like a situation where maybe a wife says to her husband, when are you going to stop 
watching all those March Madness games and get off the couch and take out the garbage like I've been asking you to. And the response is, I'll get to it when I get to it. Doesn't sound like much of an answer, does it? And yet with this answer, God reveals something very important about himself. In fact, I, I mentioned this. I referred to these verses a couple of weeks ago in a sermon. These verses point out a very important attribute of God, something known as his aseity. Do you remember? A-S-E-I-T-Y. A word that means that God is unbound. God is unlimited. God is completely independent. You cannot control him. You cannot manipulate him. In fact, no one and nothing can. God just is. Well, if you had a little bit of a difficult time wrapping your head around that a couple of weeks ago, and if you're having a little bit of a time even wrapping your head around it today, good news, in these verses, God actually provides an object lesson for his aseity. He doesn't just tell Moses this, he's actually shown it to him. There is a reason, of course, that fires normally consume things. The very things that fires burn up are the things that allow those fires to keep going. Whether it's a piece of wood or a pile of charcoal or the natural gas that is flowing through the pipes of your house, fires need fuel. That is true in every single case, except one, except here. The fact that this fire did not destroy the bush in which it was burning shows that this fire did not need fuel. It just burned. It existed all by itself. It is the perfect picture of God's aseity. God is not caused by anything. God cannot be manipulated or controlled by anyone. He just is. Here's why that's such good news for us. One of the reasons why God might seem at times to be absent in our world is because we naturally perceive as though we can control him and we can manipulate him. In fact, if your house is anything like mine, sometimes when your children do something nice, when they maybe mow the lawn or shovel the driveway or go out into the backyard and clean up after the dog, the very next thing on their minds is, how much am I going to get paid? Or for that matter, if your house is anything like mine, sometimes when someone does something wrong, more specifically when someone's sibling does something wrong, the look you get is kind of like this. What are you going to do about this? Didn't you see what just happened? You're going to punish them, right? It's very easy for us to have the same attitude about God, but what God is telling us here and showing us here is that God doesn't work that way. We cannot put God in our debt with our good behavior. We cannot channel God's anger towards sin in the very specific way that we would like it to be carried out. God cannot be controlled or manipulated by anyone. He just is. But the reason that's such good news is that it gives us nothing else with our God to hold on to except the specific things that he has promised. No, we can't control or manipulate him, but the same one who is completely unbound has willingly bound himself. The same one who could do anything that he wants has willingly limited himself by the promises he has spoken. 
In fact, that's the very thing that should have gotten those children of Israel through all of those years and centuries of slavery. God had already promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bring them to the promised land and give them that land as their inheritance. Even when they had nothing else, they had that promise to hold on to. And in the very same way, even though we cannot control or manipulate God, we can hold on to what he has promised us. In fact, because we can't control or manipulate God, that's the only thing we can do. That's the only thing left available to us. Yes, at times, everything in our world seems cold and dark, but God has promised us that no matter what we do, when we come to him, he will forgive our sins. God has promised us that he will send his Holy Spirit into our hearts to keep our faith strong and our hope in him alive. God has promised us that no matter what we might be going through, he will never leave our side. And God has promised us that one day he will set us free from this land of bondage where we are slaves to sin and death. And he will bring us to a place where only good things flow freely for eternity. And we don't need a whole bunch of good behavior to earn those blessings. And no matter how much bad behavior we have in our lives, we can't disqualify ourselves from those blessings either. When God wants us to know exactly what he's like, it's as if he still lights this fire. And it is a fire that, yes, burns, but a fire that does not need any fuel from us. And so it's no wonder that eventually Moses reached the conclusion that he reached. Just prior to these verses, Moses had actually had a son. And when he had this son, he gave him a name. He named him Gershom. In Hebrew, the name Gershom means foreigner. After 40 years of living in Egypt, Moses realized he didn't have a home there any longer. He was a foreigner. Even after 40 years of now living in Midian and starting a family, he was a foreigner there too. 80 total years and Moses still had not found a place he could call home. But then God started a fire. And yes, as Moses drew close, God told him to take off his sandals out of respect for the holy ground that he was standing on. But it wasn't holy ground that he needed to run away from. It wasn't holy ground that God banished him from. It was holy ground that God wanted Moses to walk on after he had taken off his shoes. Sort of the way someone does when they arrive at the place called home. And so it's no wonder that Moses would eventually conclude and write in the opening verses of the only psalm in the Bible that he is responsible for, Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. May we all come to that same conclusion. The world is cold. The world is dark. But we have a God in whose presence we can walk without being destroyed. And we have a God whose love for us and promises to us don't need to be earned by us. Which means that when we come into the presence of that fire, our God, we are home. Amen.